everybody. This is Mina Malapetti again with another podcast session with The Seamless Connection. And we're here today with Bob Balsmith, former CIO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas and working um, now retired and looking to share his advice and his experiences from across his long tenure in the healthcare industry. Bob, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, we'd love to have you kind of start off with an introduction to the audience about your background, both yourself personally. I know you have a lot of personal interests. Your wife's a physician. Um, you've been working in the industry in all sorts of different roles, both on the payer side as well as on the health system side. Um, can you can you introduce yourself to the to the audience and kind of share your breadth of knowledge here? Well, I'll try and uh, do this uh, quickly and briefly. Um, I've been involved in some aspect of the healthcare system for almost 35 years now. Um, starting work uh, as a systems engineer supporting the travelers insurance company back in the 80s when healthcare was largely an employee benefit program. And then I observed the industry as it started to split off these capabilities from the multi-line carriers uh, and actually started forming the health plans as we know them today, the private health plans. Mm -hmm. um, in 1998, I started working with a company that's now United Health Group as their chief systems architect and played in that role for six years, really laying the groundwork for that company's growth and their ability to effectively acquire companies and integrate those companies into that, that organization. I moved from United to becoming the chief uh, systems architect for Aetna for a couple of years and then really um, got a little fed up with my inability to innovate as fast as I wanted to in some of the um, you know, Fortune 100 companies. And that's where I started getting more involved in startups. Although I still stayed involved with some of the larger companies, I served as an advisor to the CTO of Anthem for about two and a half years on some of their large system projects. Um, in 2013, I joined with two uh, oncology nurses to form a company called CareVive which has uh, really innovated in the area of integrating um, patient reporting outcome data into the care planning process for oncology patients, really focusing on the supportive and survivorship care aspects of oncology. And um, in 2020, <laughs> sounds like I was all over the place, which is kind of true, uh, I was asked to serve as the interim CIO for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas City and that was probably the last time I got deeply involved into the healthcare system. Across kind of your experience with it, how has healthcare evolved, and specifically looking with an eye towards telehealth and virtual care from you know when you started in the 90s to where you um, from, to the point where you retired? Um, and do you think it's gone far enough? <laughs> well, um, there's a huge question around um, what problem we're we trying to solve here, and it's not for lack of technology and the use of technology. The health plans are some of the most sophisticated user of technologies. Um, the data sciences capability of the plans are incredible. Um, and of course, there's been huge investments in the electronic medical records. And I think overall, um, this is helping to deliver more integrated care for the patient. But um, part of the challenge is really about we're, there's two sides to this problem. One is, how do I get access to care, and how do I get access to coverage? And the two of those working together uh, make the, the patient experience 
really very difficult. And it makes it difficult uh, in times where, you know, the patient and their family are dealing with some really hard decisions around, you know, the diagnosis, what are the potential treatments for those diagnoses, and, you know, how does that patient and their family um, actually seek the health care that they need? Yep, no, that's completely true. Um, when you were at Blue Cross Blue Shield of, of uh, Kansas City at, at the end here, what did you notice in terms of differences from previous, um, you know, stops at Aetna, United, et cetera, in terms of how they're approaching telehealth and how they're approaching both on an inpatient basis and an outpatient basis? Because I know direct-to-consumer has been around for a while, but with the advent mm-hmm. of COVID, obviously, telehealth really stepped it up on the inpatient setting as well. So I'm curious to see if you felt the impacts of that during your last tenure here. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I would comment about that I saw going back to Kansas City in the 2020 timeframe. Um, and uh, I, wa- I wanted to address your question around the telehealth side. I think what COVID did was really changed what problem we're trying to solve. I think mm-hmm. the the health plans were early in the adoption of the teledoc kind of models, which were originally designed as an alternative to primary care visits. Um, During COVID, and I saw this with my wife's practice, uh, she started using telehealth as an extension to her practice. It was not an alternative, you know, delivery system. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, that was very positive. um, And it certainly showed that it wasn't an issue with the physicians using the technology, you know, there's, there's a belief that some people have that the physicians are slow to adopt new technology, and then you could watch go into the OR and watch them using a Da Vinci robot. I, I think that is just totally misplaced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we what I think the problem with a lot of these system design is that they were not effectively integrated into the physician workflow. Mm-hmm. So it made them very difficult, you know, because a lot of Docs, you know, who are seeing patients, they may see them for 8 to 15 minutes on average in an encounter. And it really doesn't give, if it's not well integrated into the workflow, it does not give them the opportunity to really take advantage of some of the newer technologies. So that's a huge shift in behavior that COVID really brought on. I think accelerated the use of um, virtual health as an extension to the practice. I know from a payer perspective, there's been lots of questions and quite frankly, concerns from the healthcare community of um, during COVID, as you mentioned, payers took a big leap forward in covering a lot. Of, you know, CMS did obviously leading the way, but then payers more broadly in terms of covering telehealth on the inpatient setting and in other outpatient ambulatory settings that it wasn't covered in before um, and taking away those geographic restrictions, all of those aspects of it. Do you, how was that received? I mean, more broadly within the payer community, do you think, do you think those are changes are here to stay? I know with the omnibus bill now that's been extended technically till the end of uh, December, 2024, but I mean, is this a change that could go away, that would go away, or has this been embraced internally in the payer community? Well, I think there are two things that are propping that up right now. One is the reimbursement level for those encounters. So um, some of the payers increase the amount that they would pay for a uh, virtual visit. So that it did make it worth the physician's while to actually see their patients using telehealth. The other part of your question, 
is around the licensing and credentialing side of it. Mm-hmm. So some of those controls were also dropped, mm-hmm. right? Which I think the combination of the higher reimbursement rate for telehealth, which is viewed, I don't think that's been permanent, made permanent yet. So if that drops down, that'll be a disincentive for providers to continue using telehealth. But the other thing was the dropping of some of the credentialing requirements because, um, you know, the government requires you to be credentialed in the state where your patient is, not where you're providing the services. So you start doing telehealth and you're starting to consult with patients or you know, having virtual visits with patients in all 50 states, you actually have to be credentialed in every one of those states or licensed in every one of those states. So I think we're also going to need to look at how we extend some of those exceptions. Mm -hmm. So part of it is around payment reform and part of it is around credentialing reform. Mm -hmm. Now, this also gets into another issue, which is that the payers and the providers are both credentialing. They both create their own networks, right? Yep. Yep. So you have hospitals, hospital systems that have their network of providers, and they're incentivized to keep the patients within their system. Mm-hmm. The payers also have their networks, and they're the ones that are contracting with the doctors mm-hmm. and want to keep the patients within their networks. Mm-hmm. But the networks on the payer side and the networks on the on the provider side are not the same networks. So if you <laughs> want to talk about making it confusing for the consumer, that that's one great example of where it, you know, I don't know how any consumer can fully understand, you know, how that works or why it is the way it is. Yeah. But it, it, you know, we're really getting back to the need for control, mm-hmm. and I think both industries kind of use the term steerage. You know, the hospitals want to keep them within their net, their network, within their system. Right. And when the patients go outside of their system, they actually refer to it as system leakage. Yeah. Which is, um, and when patients or members, and I think that's an important thing, when you're talking about patients of the health system and members of the health plan, when the members go outside a network, then they're, um, you know, they're not covered using the in-network rates, yeah. and now they're exposed to out-of-network rates, and they don't have the benefit that the plan is providing, which is that the health system cannot charge them more than the contracted rate. So right. in effect, what happens when you go out of network as a member is you're going outside of contract. And then there's been recent changes around balance billing. And, and you know, to, to your point about the hospital network versus the payer network, that's when you get situations like a patient's gone in for surgery they don't realize their anesthesiologist is out of network and they get a $10,000 bill they weren't expecting. That's correct. Uh, and, and then you have the balance. So is balance billing still apply for out of network? I know for in-network stuff, they're not supposed to anymore. But I don't know how that that's played out now in the pair space. I but, haven't been close to enough to know. Yeah, yeah no. It's it's interesting because because you hear so many stories of people saying, you know surprised by... The bills when they go in for exactly what you said, which is it's a mismatch of the hospital network versus the contracted in-network physicians and, and service providers for for whatever you know insurance that member happens to have. So now there are there have been tests in this country, and a lot of this work was done in California many years ago, probably in the late 1990s, where health plans have delegated these responsibilities to the health system. 
The problem is that, you know, there's a delegation of authority here as to who has the authority to do that credentialing work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if the health systems could demonstrate that through their credentialing processes and the way that they're integrating providers into their network, they actually consistently reduce the cost of care, mm -hmm. I think the health plans would be inclined to embrace that. The, the problem we've had with a lot of the consolidation going on in, in, the, in the industry and a lot of the private practices being bought out by health systems is the cost of care has gone up in this country. Yes. So you would think that yeah. by consolidating that you would gain efficiencies. Right. Well, they haven't materialized. And what are you seeing from, I mean, from your time as a, as a CIO and, and as a systems engineer, like as you and I were chatting earlier and you mentioned that there should be so much more you can do with technology. So where, where have you, where did you see the potential and where has it fallen flat in terms of, you know, you thought this would have been solved by now. Are there, are there kind of top of mind examples that you're like, why are we not solve this? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you see the amount of, and this is where I get into things that I wish I hadn't seen. Mm. When you when you realize the amount of fraud, waste, and abuse in the U.S. healthcare system, you start to realize why some of these checks and balances are necessary. Um, Can you give us some examples? Um, so, <laughs> one of the interesting things is that, unlike other industries, um, when you increase the supply you increase the utilization. Hmm. And when you see an increased supply of certain specialties in certain parts of the country, you actually see consistently higher utilization of that, those specialty services. Is that up to a certain point because it was underutilized then and then it plateaus out or actually it, consistently goes up? It doesn't appear to be, um, but I don't know if we really understand the answer to that. Um, but, you know, you look at the the bigger numbers, which is the U.S. spends on average 60% more for healthcare than any other G7 country. Mm -hmm. So is it just because we're richer that we can afford more care? Mm -hmm. Or are we actually getting better results because we're spending more on care? And it's the outcomes do not appear to support the argument that we're getting better care for the 60% increase in cost. And I think on an individual level, I was just looking at the report from the OECD on understanding the differences in healthcare expenditures between the U.S. and other OECD countries, mm -hmm. and the cost at a uh, per capita level is like 2x. Wow. It, you know, the 60% difference is as a percentage of GDP, yeah. but of course the U.S. is a richer country, so yeah. when you actually get down on the per capita level, it's like 2x. Yeah. And, and there have been stories, um, and I know this is getting better. Uh, back when I first started looking at this, maybe 10 years ago, there were five times more MRIs per capita in the United States than France. So what does that tell you? Now, I understand I just this is hearsay that it's now down to 2x. But to me, um, I think a lot of this, you know, is a result of, the health systems competing with other health systems and to attract the best doctors, they need to have the best equipment. Mm -hmm. And because of the way our system is designed, it's 
we don't optimize the utilization of a lot of this expensive technology. No, which makes sense because it's it's kind of a field of dream situation. If you build it, they will come. So once they've spent a few million dollars on a piece of, of hardware, they want to you know maximize that the utilization of that. And so then, it's actually from a hospital perspective, it's worth it to run every patient through the MRI. Obviously, the payers have a very different. <laughs> well, if they can get away with it, I suppose. But you know, at some point in time, you know, it, you, you know, if the hospitals want more um, authority over this and control over this, then they need to demonstrate that they actually will start to put some of these controls in place. Mm -hmm. What do you think of a system like a Kaiser that is fully integrated across the board and so they control both the payer and the hospital side of things? Well, I think when you look at a, uh, at Kaiser, you find that some of those costs are lower. Mm -hmm. uh, you also, I, One of my favorite systems to look at is Geisinger, mm -hmm. where you've got a health plan and a health system but the health system will take members from other health plans and the health plan mm -hmm. will cover cover services at other health systems. Interesting. So it's that. a it's a loosely coupled model and okay. they've demonstrated some of the best results in the industry. And the cost savings and technological savings as well like Correct. that as you expected. Okay. Yep. And, and they I was uh used to be friends with the head of innovation there and he was telling some stories about when they were discussing how they do patient outreach. Mm -hmm. They said, you know what, the um, systems that are available for the call centers and the patient outreach type of systems are actually better on the member side out. So why don't we do it over there? But <laughs> do it using the care plan that's established on the health system side. So yeah. there was a lot of common sense things that they were doing. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like they had the flexibility to be able to do that because they owned both sides of the equation. What about for people that don't own it? What if it's, you know, if it's a, it's a blue or a United or a Cigna where they have one aspect and then you have independent hospital X on, on the other side of their patient set. Is there a way for that to improve at all you see? <laughs> it's a great question. And what I've observed so far is that the, um, the health plans, especially United Health Group through Optum, where they've bought out a number of primary care groups. And Kansas City, that has started Spiracare, which is, I think, about eight or nine primary care clinics now mm -hmm. that are operated by the health plan under a separate, fully isolated division. Because one of the things to understand about health plans is they're not in the business of practicing medicine. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if they do step over the line, they're liable for malpractice. So there, you'll find that there's a fairly strong firewall between the health plan and practicing medicine, mm -hmm. although they can make it very difficult for people who are practicing medicine to do it effectively. So, yeah. you, you know, yeah. you, you think of all the prior auth requirements, et cetera, yeah. where patients are looking for services that are high cost and, you know. So for companies like ours or anyone else that's working with hospitals, but also wants to work as a partner with payers to help bring down the cost of the system and, and get the outcomes we're looking for, what, you know, what are your tips, what are your suggestions from having been on both sides of the equation in terms of what's the best way to work with the payer? What's the best way to, to get the results we're all looking for? So um, this would be partly my dream, but uh, <laughs> is that this would stay integrated on the provider side. Mm -hmm. um, the when you're using virtual care, the benefit to the health plan is that you're providing as good care at lower cost. Mm -hmm. 
and that may be because you've got providers that are in lower cost demographics or um, it's better coordinated care. Mm -hmm. My concern with moving this to the payer side, mm -hmm. you, sh you start moving out of the system that has that integrated EMR and the care plans, mm -hmm. and we still do not have an effective way for moving a lot of that data between health systems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a concern with a lot of the health systems. If they refer patients out of their network, then it almost is asking for other systems to grab that patient. Yep. Right. So I think there's a lot of worry about that. Uh, but it's really incumbent on the hospitals, if they want to continue owning that network, is to use virtual care as a way to reduce their cost. It's common or uncommon? Oh, I think that is what's incumbent on. Incumbent on, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, th I think when they start taking on that responsibility, um, the health plans will be much easier to work with. Once they kind of refocused on cost of care and gone, kind of gone back to basics. Right, and, and ensuring the health plans, which are really on providing a, a benefit in a lot of cases, that um, I, th I think that relationship will improve a lot if they're taking on that responsibility. And it's done with full transparency. I think that's the other thing that is mm -hmm. concerning here. What be prior to the EMRs, where the health plans were really getting more into coordinated care mm -hmm. before the health systems, because the health systems really didn't have the technology to do it effectively. Right. I, I remember hearing from Jack Rowe, who was the former chairman of Aetna, on, he, he was asked, because he was a doctor, a gerontologist, and was asked by a colleague, why are you in, you know, the care management business? Mm -hmm. And this was probably 15 years ago or so, maybe, yeah, about 15 years ago. And he said in response, because you're not. Someone's got to do it. Someone needs to do it. And, you know, the payers had the technology or sooner to try and do that coordination of care. But what they were trying to do through the use of personal health records and those types of things mm -hmm. was to bring the data together. Mm -hmm. Well, now the, the, the health systems have the electronic medical records. They have that data pulled together. Mm -hmm. So they really need to leverage that to mm -hmm. provide the integrated care within the, within the system. And show that to the payers to get the buy-in that you need on their end. As Correct. Well. And demonstrate that they can actually do it and gain the efficiencies of integrated care. Yeah, no, that, that completely makes sense. Do you feel like there's more and deeper for telehealth to penetrate on a health system or payer setting? Um, again, focusing on the inpatient side of things for a second, not the ambulatory direct-to-consumer side that traditionally started this out. Well, you know, one of the things, and we mentioned this in our uh, pre-conversation, is how important it is when you're introducing technology in the health system setting mm -hmm. is that you're integrated into the provider workflow. Yes. Because they only have so much time. You know, a lot of them are dealing with 8 to 15 minutes within an encounter. Mm -hmm. You know, the technology has to be easy to use and it has to be integrated into the workflow. Um, if telehealth is, is doing that, and the answer is absolutely yes, they will be, they will embrace that. Um, I think the other thing is to understand what types of workflows you support. Mm -hmm. So, and really understanding, is this supporting a consult? Is it supporting a referral? Is this something where you're actually 
basically setting up a visit for the patients so that they see a specialist via uh, virtual uh, televisit. Um, I think each one of those is probably has a different answer. Yeah, and I'm actually curious because one thing that we've noticed, it's very obvious to see what the benefits are to a health system when you bring in telehealth and you integrate it properly to provide a workflow. You're supporting the local team, the hospitalist, right. the nursing team, you're preventing transfers, preventing system leakage, as you mentioned. Um, from a payer perspective, it's it's a little bit messier, right? Because you're saving the cost of a transfer, you're saving the cost of extra diagnostics, extra scans, but it's it's a harder number to pin down as opposed to I got to keep this DRG, right? So uh, that's that's right, and and you're also doing it out of it's outside the care team and it's outside the workflow. So that's why I really would encourage you to see if you can make the model really push on the the health system side to make it work and to deliver the efficiencies. And then we, we, we bring the payers kicking and screaming along with it. <laughs> it, it, it well, or that could accelerate the move more to what the industry is calling payviders. What's that? Where um, you actually have health systems that become health plans. Oh, okay. So more like it, a Geisinger model. More like a Kaisinger model. Absolutely. Um, you know, Kaisinger is at a scale that a lot of these other systems are not at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to start your own insurance company, you know, is kind of right. tough. But there are companies out there that are starting to build a foundation for what could be third-party administrators for health plans run by health systems. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of health systems that have experimented with that. I know mm -hmm. that Hartford HealthCare, which is the community I live in has experimented with that. And I think they'll eventually go back to that model at some point. Um, and speaking of Harvard, I know you recently retired uh, from your official full-time job, other than me letting me pick your brain on healthcare. But um, <laughs> what, do, what do you see yourself uh, doing next? In terms, are you are you kind of energized and go, wanting to go back to healthcare now? Are you taking a break and figuring out next steps? Are you enjoying time with family? It's a great question, and thanks for asking. Um, I'm actually perhaps entering healthcare from a different perspective. Um, three months after I retired, I was appointed the new board chair for the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. I saw that. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, there is a huge opportunity here um, to use music to build and diversify our communities, bring us all together. And we know that um, music plays a role in mental health. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a number of things that I'm looking to do there that, you know, I'd love to have it benefit the country at large, but I'm in my retirement, I'm focusing much more on my community now. And that's, that's amazing. And, 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 you know, seeing the change in your day-to-day -day community, it makes it all worthwhile, right? Cause you know, generally you do stuff for the greater good, but seeing that actually come home is, is amazing. And speaking from a personal perspective, my kids are, you know, Christmas tradition, we always go see the Nutcracker, right? Mm -hmm. So. For us, and, and they love it every year. They know the story by heart, but and, and every different ballet company does it slightly different. San Francisco Ballet is amazing. Um, and, and just having that as a tradition has been lovely, but also using that as an avenue for them now. They, they're both super into orchestra and you know musical instruments, which I couldn't play to save my life. So, <laughs> so there you go. Um, it's, it's been good. It's, it's been a wonderful avenue to, to you know, expose them to. And like you said, 
um, for mental health reasons, for bringing people to kind of a more Zen state of mind when they need to be just, or just escaping and enjoying a different time and place. That's what it's all about. Well, thank you so much. I know we've gone a little bit over, but I really appreciate the time this morning um, and looking forward to, to staying in touch. Sounds good. Thank you.